in the story A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, Ebenezer Scrooge was a nasty, greedy man who didn't give a rip about anybody. And yet, you know, one night he was visited by three ghosts. There was the ghost of Christmas past who showed him why he was so miserable. There was the ghost of Christmas present who showed him how he made others miserable. And then there was the ghost of Christmas future who showed him what his life would become. And what this final ghost showed him about what the future, about what his life would become was so significant and life-transforming that it literally altered everything about his life in the present. It radically transformed his life. And this man was never the same again. And my point is, is that that ghost, there is a spiritual corollary to the ghost of Christmas future. What I mean is that that is exactly what prophecy and eschatology and end times theology is designed to do in you. It changes the heart. It opens the eyes. It crucifies our fears. And in the moment, it gives us what we need the most. And what we need the most, you understand, is perspective. Perspective. What I mean is it helps us see the world through different eyes. It helps us see the world through sovereign eyes. Through the eyes of a God who doesn't merely passively allow things to happen and then simply make the best of it. But rather that this is a God who rules and reigns. This is a God who ordains and orchestrates. This is a God who causes and controls and who guides and governs every single moment to the exact outcome that he himself determined. You see, eschatology helps us see that there are no accidents in the universe. There's no such thing as coincidences. There's no such thing as luck or chance or karma, rather, all there is, is God. And he has already written the script of history. Do you see? In the moments of panic, and pain, and fear, and sadness, and anger, and lust, and depression, what we need is not the general sense that God, that things are simply going to get better somehow but that God has already planned the future and the best is yet to come. That's exactly what Isaiah gives us in our text this morning. Namely, a vision of the future and what God has planned for the end of the age. The prophet Isaiah was not the ghost of Christmas past, but he was the prophet of Israel's future, as was Jeremiah. Ezekiel and Daniel and all the minor prophets up until Malachi. You, you understand these men were called by God to face the loaded gun of a hostile culture. To stare a trembling people right in the eyes and purge their fear and provoke their repentance and produce trust in Yahweh alone and to prepare these apostate people not merely to handle the pain that was coming for them but even more to embrace their Messiah as their treasure and as their king. You understand? That's what the book of Isaiah is. That's what the entire Bible is. A salvation saga of a sovereign Savior who will come and single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. That's
that's the Bible. That's the book of Isaiah. And yet within Isaiah 66 chapters, there is a series of sermons called oracles. Oracles. They begin in chapter 28, they end in chapter 35, and you know that they're called by scholars the oracles of woe. The oracles of woe. Meaning, meaning that these are a group of sermons that have as their most prominent uh, feature the declaration, the ominous declaration, woe to you. That's how every single one of these oracle sermons begins. Woe to you. Which means, yes, these sermon oracles, they're weighty and serious and filled with wrath and rage and rebuke for sins past and present. And yet at the very same time, these oracles, listen carefully, they are also filled with staggering hope and promises for the future. Which is why I titled the sermon, Brokenness Through Beauty, Security Through Sovereignty. Because if there's more than one way to skin a cat, there are multiple ways to break a heart. And one of the ways to break a heart is through a riveting glimpse of the future glorious kingdom that you will miss out on if you don't repent. And what better way? What better way to fill the soul with security than a riveting display of God's sovereignty? That's exactly what Isaiah is doing. You understand, he wants to break their hearts through beauty. He wants to secure their souls through God's sovereignty. The design of these chapters is not unlike what the ghosts for Ebenezer Scrooge were designed to do in his life, namely to wake them up and radically alter everything about their lives. To bring them to their knees in repentance and faith. To cut loose of the sin that would lead to their destruction. To be freed from the fears that cripple their souls. To open their eyes to the majesty of God. And to inject in their hearts a longing for the kingdom. And my guess is, church, those are the very same things that you need also. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text, six end times guarantees. That's what eschatology is, dealing with the end times. Six end times guarantees that not only break us with their beauty, but secure us with God's sovereignty. That's where we're headed. Six end times guarantees that not only break us with their beauty, but secure us with God's sovereignty. The oracle comes in four parts. Part one is this. Number one, a pronouncement and a promise. A pronouncement and a promise. Because you understand, politically, economically, culturally, and spiritually, the people of Judah were in really terrible shape. The very fabric of their civilization was coming apart at the seams, you understand. All the hopes and dreams that Moses had for the great nation of Israel. That they would be a, a, a wise and mighty people who would radiate Yahweh's glory and bring, and bring glory to his name. Those hopes and dreams had now blown away like smoke in the wind. 
and as a judgment upon them for centuries of sin and idolatry, get this, God was now directing the armies of Assyria to head to Jerusalem at this very moment. At any second, the battalions of Assyria could appear on the horizon and level the great city to the ground. This is bad. This is really, really bad. This is a staggering national crisis that put their entire existence into jeopardy. And by now, you know well how the leaders of Judah responded to this crisis. Instead of repentance and trusting in God to deliver them in a sovereign, supernatural way, they instead bribed the king of Egypt to intervene and to pay him for his protection. Remember that? That's a problem. That's a, that's a really big problem. Not to mention sad and ironic, isn't it? I mean, think about it. They were going to trust and bribe the very same Egyptians that enslaved them for 400 years. They were going to trust and bribe the very same Egyptians that Yahweh decimated when he parted the Red Sea and delivered his people. God already slaughtered the Egyptians centuries ago, and now you're going to look to them instead of the very one who destroyed them? That literally makes zero sense. Because trusting God never makes, not trusting God never makes any sense. And Isaiah does not for a moment hesitate to tell this to his people. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, and they do not rely on the Holy One of Israel, and Yahweh they do not seek. And there it is. Woe to you. Not really the words at all that you would ever want to hear spoken to you. And the reason why for that is because what is a woe? What is a woe other than a weighty rebuke for decisions made out of foolish fear? What is a woe but a pronouncement of pain that could have been avoided if you just trusted the power and promises of God? What is a woe but a well-deserved self-destruction that you brought upon yourself through the flagrant disregard of what God has spoken in his word? That's what this is. Woe to you, he says. Woe to who? Notice, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. That's who. That's who gets the woe. Because you understand, don't you, under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, to trust in another nation to protect you instead of Yahweh was a formal violation of the covenant and a formal rejection of his authority. You understand that, don't you? In other words, you couldn't trust one and the other at the exact same time. You had to pick and choose between the two. And Judah made it very clear who their choice was, wasn't it? Egypt was their Lord and Savior. The picture there in verse 1 is of a caravan loaded with cash traveling down to Egypt to make a deal and buy their protection. And look at the tragedy in the verbs. Judah was relying on horses and trusting in chariots, trusting in horsemen. Why? Because they were many and they were strong. 
Although the glory of Egypt was now long faded and they were but a hollow shell of the dynasty that they used to be, Judah looked at their cavalry and their tanks and their chariots and their horsemen and their soldiers and they were persuaded this is the secret sauce. This is hope. This is victory. This is safety. This is security. And yet what it really was was suicide, and in the end, apostasy. Because look at the end of verse 1. They do not rely on the Holy One of Israel and Yahweh. They do not seek. I mean, how did we get here? How did we get here? How on earth did the leaders of Judah forget that one nation alone with God is always in the majority? What were the battalions and chariots of all the armies in the world compared to the God who spoke galaxies into existence? How did they get to the point when they had strategy meetings about the future of their country, Yahweh never even came up in the meeting. Trusting God was irrational. This was foolish. To only trust God to intervene and, and deliver you, this was foolish and irresponsible for the bygone days of another era when people trusted in such fairy tales. And my question is, church, do you have anything like that in your life? Judah looked at the shiny army, ar ar armor of Egypt's battalions, the steel of their chariots, the rows and rows of their soldiers all armed with swords and shields, and they became the savior. They became the refuge. They became their security. They became their very hope. And my question for you is, what is your Egypt To whom or to what are you looking other than God for your security and for your soul's deepest satisfaction? Do you have anything like that in your life? Because bottom line is, if you do not seek him with the little things, you will not seek him with the big things either. And Judah thought they were so wise. I thought they were so clever in soliciting the help of Egypt. I mean, this made a lot of sense militarily speaking. And yet what they forgot, what they forgot that Yahweh alone is truly wise and that his plan always prevails. Look at verses 2 and 3. But he, that is God, he is wise. And he will bring calamity, literally evil. He will bring it to his people. And he will not depart from his words. And he will rise up against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who do iniquity. Egypt is a man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. But Yahweh shall turn his hand and the helper shall stumble and the helped shall fall. And both of them together shall be destroyed. That is incredible. Do you see what's happening there in verse 2? Judah thought they were so clever, that they were so wise, but you see, the wisdom of Yahweh would prevail. Meaning, meaning, they could not alter what he planned. 
the bargain with Egypt changed nothing. Assyria was still coming. Whether they made the deal or not, it changed nothing. Yahweh would still bring calamity upon his people. Verse 2, he would not depart from his words. Which words? The words of 28 and 29 and 30, that the help of Egypt would come to nothing. Look at, look at the end of the verse, verse 2. Yahweh will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who do iniquity. In other words, one punch, two broken noses. The house of evildoers is his own people. The help of those who do iniquity is Egypt, and both of them are going down. Verse 3. Egypt is a man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. But notice, Yahweh shall turn his hand and the helper, who is that? Egypt shall stumble and the helped, who's that? Judah shall fall and both of them together shall be destroyed. <laughs> Do you see the issue here, church? Governor Abbott is just a man and not God. The conservative political party is just flesh and not spirit. Rather, we must rely wholeheartedly on the one who merely has to turn his hand and flick his wrists, and he will bring all the rebel powers of the world to their knees in subjection. We must learn well the lesson of Psalm 33. The king is not saved by a mighty army, nor is a warrior delivered by his great strength. A horse is a false hope for salvation, and by his many weapons he will not be delivered. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him and on those who hope for his loving kindness. That's the answer right there, church, right there. The answer to your greatest terrors and fears and dangers in your life, namely to fear Yahweh and hope in his love and kindness. My question is, do you fear him? Do you hope for his love and kindness? Are you persuaded that God made it all and owns it all, and rules it all, and that in his son he will win it all? Because if we're going to sleep at night and not go insane in a world that has gone insane, this is what it takes. But then Isaiah does that thing the prophets do, and they change the subject without giving us any warning and then saying something that we would never, ever expect him to say, because here's the thing, and you have to understand this to make any sense out of Isaiah. Ever since chapter 7, Isaiah has warned the people of Judah about the coming invasion of Assyria, right? We've been hearing about this for months. This has been 30 years, by, by their standards, in the making. And yet, you might remember, in the very next chapter, chapter 8, uh, Isaiah intimated that the destruction would not be complete. 
In other words, listen carefully, although Judah 100% deserved to have Assyria wipe them off the face of the planet, Yahweh had declared that he would instead intervene. Do you see that? Instead of being glorified by Jerusalem's obliteration, he would instead be glorified by their salvation and a display of a supernatural power. He would rescue them just before the buzzer. Look at verses 4 and 5. For thus says Yahweh to me, as a lion and a young lion growl over their prey, and they are not terrified by a band of shepherds who call out with their voice, nor are they dismayed by their number, so Yahweh of hosts shall come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. As flying birds, so Yahweh of hosts shall enclose around Jerusalem. Notice, here it is. He will protect, he will deliver, he will spare, and he will bring to safety. Do you see what this is? That's an illustration, isn't it? There is a lion. There is prey. There are shepherds. And the shepherds do their best to frighten the lion from his prey, but the lion is too fierce and ferocious and too fearless to be frightened by anything. And I think it's perfectly clear who's who, don't you? The lion is Yahweh. The prey is Jerusalem. Assyria are the shepherds. And they are coming soon with 185,000 soldiers to take the city for themselves. But Yahweh the lion remains sovereign and unshaken. Get too close to a lion, and he will rip out your throat. Get too close to Jerusalem, and verse 4, Yahweh will come down and wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill and devour the legions of Assyria. Guess what? Chapter 37, that is exactly what went down. He would deliver them. I can't believe it. He would rescue them. This is, this is, although these apostate people did the exact opposite, this is what Yahweh would and did do. And I understand, beloved. I understand that, that, that Yahweh's deliverance of Jerusalem from Assyria, although interesting, it was 2,723 years ago. And so there is a sense, perhaps, that the relevance of it for our lives becomes a little lost on us. But be very careful. There is an implication here. Listen very carefully. The deliverance from Assyria is a paradigm for our lives today. Do you hear that? The deliverance from Assyria is a paradigm for our lives today. What do I mean? What I mean is everything in our lives, everything that in your lives, and I want you to think of these things, everything in your lives that is ugly and sad and broken and irreversible and seemingly irreversible will be reversed and turned for good. It will. God will intervene. He will deliver you. He will. Either now, temporarily, or finally, forever, in the future, when Christ returns. But either way, God will deliver you. And he will win it all. 
and you will win it all because his future victory is your future victory. His redemption is your redemption. And when he finally does intervene, he will make absolutely darn sure that he alone gets the glory. Look at verses 8 and 9. Assyria will fall by a sword, not by man. And a sword will consume them, not wielded by man. Assyria, they, they will flee from before the sword, and their youth will be put to forced labor, and their rock, that's the king of Assyria, mighty though he was, he will pass by from horror, and his princes will flee from the banner in terror, declares Yahweh, who his fire is in Zion, and his furnace is in Jerusalem. Do you see it? Assyria would fall. Assyria would be conquered. They would be vanquished. They would be slaughtered. How? By a sword? Yes, by a sword, but not wielded by the hands of men, which can only mean, it can only mean Yahweh himself would wield the sword, meaning he would and did intervene in a sovereign, supernatural way. According to chapter 37, verse 36, in one night, he silently and invisibly killed all 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Fact delivered. And the way he did it secured his glory, didn't it? And so, church, the question becomes, okay, what the heck should the people of Judah do now? God just announced through Isaiah that he would deliver them from Assyria. What should be the response? They didn't deserve it. They, 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 they did not deserve any of that at all, and yet he was going to do it anyway. What should be their response? And the answer is obvious and clear. Look up at verse 6. Return. Return. Return to him from whom you have defected. For in that day, each will reject his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have made. Do you, see, do you see the point? What was the only fitting response to the deliverance of God that they did not deserve? What was it? Brokenness is the answer. Brokenness. Broken hearted repentance and faith and a violent destruction of all the idols that had taken God's place. That was the only answer that made any sense. It's a call to repentance. And so don't you see the grace of God in our lives is what frees us from the idols that entangle us. The grace of God in his son liberates us from the idols that threaten to take his place. And so my question for you is, my question for you is, does your sin break your heart? Do you have any idols that you need to smash right now? Is there anything in your life encroaching on the holy ground of your heart reserved only for Jesus Christ? Because you know, don't you, that the only effective remedy against the idolatrous pull of false gods is to get your soul captivated by God, right? 
Is there any other way to kill, to kill idolatry? There isn't. The only long meditation upon the matchless beauty of Jesus Christ from the pages of Scripture. That is it. That is how it works. Which brings us to part two. Part two, which I'm calling a preview and a portrayal. A preview and a portrayal. A preview of what? A, 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 a portrayal of what exactly? I'll tell you what, of the Messiah and his return to claim his kingdom. That's what. Which makes total sense that Isaiah would talk about that next, doesn't it? It, it makes total sense because you understand the greatest proof. Listen carefully. This is the connection we have to make or we miss the chapter. The greatest proof that God would in fact deliver them from Assyria was if they could see a glimpse of the future kingdom and then they could see that they were in it. Wouldn't that be the proof? That if they could fast forward the movie of God's plan to the end of history and see themselves in that final scene, that would be all the evidence that God would keep every single promise he ever made to them. Agreed? That's exactly what chapter 32 is. Chapter 32 is God's fast forward to the end, to the final scene, to the finish line of history. And who do we see is in it? But Israel themselves renewed and restored and redeemed and reconciled to God. And like the ghost of Christmas future, everything that Isaiah reveals here is designed to transform everything about their lives. Look at verses 1 through 4, chapter 32. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. Who's that? And his princes, it's plural in the Hebrew, his princes shall rule in justice. And each will be like a hiding place from the wind and a, a, a hiding place from the storm. They will be like streams of water in a waterless land, like a shadow of a massive rock in a parched land. And the eyes of those who see will not be blind and the ears of those who hear will, will listen carefully and the heart of the hasty will understand and know and the stammering tongue will be quick to speak what is clear. There it is. With a push of a button, or should I say the stroke of a pen, Isaiah transports us into the future. And what do we see but a king? A king. A king, he says, who will reign in righteousness. Do you see it? And, and you know, this is not the first time that Isaiah has made mention of a king. A king who will come and make things right in the world. In fact, his entire 66-chapter masterpiece has as its gravitational center this very king who will single-handedly solve the dilemma of sin in the world. And you know, you know, church, that since the very, very beginning, we have needed a king, haven't we? Adam was the first, you know. He was the first king of the human race called to rule the earth and bring it into subjection, but he blew it with his sin and squandered the kingdom. But then in Genesis 49.10, it predicts a king who would come from the tribe of Judah, and it says that all the peoples of the world would obey him. And then 2 Samuel 7 speaks of this very same king from the line of David who would establish an eternal kingdom on this planet and reign forever. And then you get to the Psalms. Oh, the Psalms. 
Psalm 2 and 22 and 72 and 89 and Psalm 110 speaks of this king sent by Yahweh to rule the world and claim what Adam has lost. And then, and then you get to Isaiah and the dam breaks open. And the most precise and conspicuous and beautiful portrayals of the Messiah found in the entire Old Testament from the line of David, born from a virgin, fully God, fully man, who will strike the earth and slay the wicked. And here he is again in chapter 32, verse 1, a king who will reign in righteousness. In righteousness. That doesn't merely mean morality. It means that this king will bring the earth back to its pre-fall, pristine, paradise-like conditions. Finally, here is a king who will never take a bribe. Finally, here is a king who has no scandals buried in the closet. Here is a king who will rule the world with absolute, holy, sovereign perfection. And who is this king? But the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he's here in the text, centuries before he appeared. And he will show up and he will take, the, take back the planet that rightfully belongs to him. But you noticed in the text, didn't you? Not just he alone, but also look at verse 1. Look what it says. He has princes. Princes. He, he has princes that will rule with him in justice. He'll have a cabinet, co-leaders, rulers to whom he will delegate authority. Whoever these guys are, they will be our leaders and representatives under the reign of the great king. And I think it's the apostles. I think it's the apostles. And the reason why is because Matthew 19, 28, Christ tells the disciples, whenever the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit on 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Notice how Isaiah describes the king and his princes when they establish the reign upon the earth. Because how would you describe the leaders that lead us today? What adjectives would you use to describe them? How would you, how would you describe how it is that they care for you? If at all, we would not speak highly. Here's what we will say of them when that day comes, the king and his princes. Each will be like a resting place from the wind and a hiding place from the storm. They will be like streams of water in a weary land, like shade of a massive rock in a, in a weary land. In other words, after centuries of greedy, incompetent, wicked, tyrannical rulers, the king and his princes will love us and protect us and actually do only what is best for us. That's what he means. Verses 3 and 4 describe nothing less than a, the global awakening and the regeneration of nations. Look at the text, the verses 3 and 4. The, the eyes of the blind will see. The deaf will hear. People will understand. People, people will speak what is right. What is that but, but a, a global revival? And yet, and yet, if you're going to have a perfect kingdom, you have to remove the wicked. Verses 5 through 7. The fool will no longer be called a noble. 
and the scoundrel will no longer be thought generous. For the fool speaks nonsense, and his heart does iniquity to do godlessness. And all and the scoundrel, his weapons are evil, and he devises schemes, and he speaks perversion against Yahweh to empty out the soul of the hungry and to keep unsatisfied the thirsty, to destroy the afflicted with words of falsehood, even when the needy insists on what is right. <laughs> Have you heard any better description? It, it captures the, the perversion of our culture than that. You understand, church, we live right now in the great reversal. Everything that God stands for, everything that he speaks in his word is not only challenged, it is deliberately reversed. Evildoers are rewarded, the righteous are punished. Police are defunded, drag queens are exalted. Truth is hidden, lies are esteemed. Babies are slaughtered, animals are saved. Men act like women, women act like men. And yet Isaiah literally just said, those days are coming to an end. It will be over. When the great high king comes to claim his throne, the great reversal will be the great revival. Look at the text. Verse 5, fools will no longer be called nobles. Scoundrels will no longer be esteemed. Verses 6 and 7, the cunning and conniving people who serve in public office, who play their little games and posture for power, who deceive and defraud the very people that they are paid to protect, who lobby for one abomination after another, they will, in the day of the king's return, be replaced. These are bleak and dismal days in the world, church. As the culture eats itself to death and dies in obscurity, and yet the bright side, the bright side to living in an increasingly unrighteous, fascist, and deceptive leaders is that it creates in us the hunger all the more to be ruled by a king who will not be that way. You understand, beloved, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is not just about the forgiveness of your personal sins. It isn't just a personal relationship with God. Rather, it is about the king coming to reclaim what rightfully belongs to him. And you should tell people about that. We love to have it in writing, don't we? Don't you love to get things in writing? Don't you love warranties? Don't you love guarantees? Promises, pledges, certainties, securities? You love that? my question for you is, what is more certain and secure than what God has spoken? My question is, what is more guaranteed than what God has decreed? What is more real than what God has revealed in the sacred text? Think about it like this. Name one fear in your life today that will still be there in the day of the great king. Name one. Name one. 
Name one gaping wound in your soul that won't be repaired when the king comes to reign. Name one. Name one sin, one struggle, one ugly deformity in your life that won't be conquered and removed. Name one thing that you have suffered or lost for the sake of Christ that won't be repaid back 10,000 times over when the king comes to reign. Name one. Don't you see, this is why this is here. And this is why I'm preaching this to you to help you see the world through different eyes. Part three, part three, the pain and the punishment, the pain and the punishment, because there's a lot of talk in our day about disinformation, isn't there? Misinformation, fake news, false narratives, fact checkers and propaganda. It is literally in our day ideological warfare, isn't it? There is right now in our world a fight for reality and a bloody knuckled battle over whose interpretation of truth and history and reality is right. And it was exactly the same in Isaiah's day. And in the time that he was a prophet, there was a competing narrative of events that collided and split the country into, and by split the people into, I mean everybody believed the false narrative, and Isaiah was over here by himself, the only one preaching against it. And that narrative, that disinformation that needed serious fact-checking by the prophet was the propaganda that Egypt could protect them. He stood alone. No, they can't. That's what they believed. They, they were persuaded. They were totally convinced that hashtag Egypt saves lives. And what that poisonous and propaganda produced in these people, especially in the women, it turns out, was a spiritual apathy that put their souls in danger. Look at verses 9 through 14. Oh, women who are at ease, stand up, hear my voice. Oh, complacent daughters, give ear to my word. Interesting phrase here. There's, not a, there's debate about this. You could translate this. Days within a year. This year, in just a matter of days, I think, you will be terrified, oh, complacent ones, for the vintage and the gathering will cease. It will come no more. Be terrified, oh, women at ease. Tremble, oh, complacent daughters. Strip, strip yourselves. Gird yourselves about the loins. Beat yourselves on the breast. Why? Because of the pleasant field. Because of the fruitful vine. Because of the land of my people that will grow with thorns and thistles. Because of all the houses of joy, the jubilant city. For the palace will be deserted. The, the populated cities will be abandoned. The hill and the watchtower will become caves forever. A delight for wild donkeys and a pasture for the flocks. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. But you could totally tell that something was seriously, tragically wrong with the people and especially the women not just the women but the women also which isn't new at all back in chapter 3 Isaiah singled them out for their arrogance and pride 
before the major financial recession in chapter 7, which happened under King Ahaz, there was widespread pretense and vanity and conceit in this wealthy, affluent culture, and Isaiah rebuked them and singled them out there. Here he does it again. They're still in sin, only this time it's worse. And you notice that twice Isaiah called these women women at ease. Three times he called them complacent. Meaning what? Meaning, listen carefully, that a terrible spiritual apathy and lethargy had gripped the women of the entire country. They either refused to believe or they had not yet been awakened to the tragic condition of their souls or of the whole country. Either way, Isaiah needed to wake them up. Look at verse 9. Oh, women at ease, stand up. Hear my voice. Oh, complacent daughters, give ear to my word. You need to wake up, ladies. Don't blow me off like you usually do. This is Isaiah, not me. <laughs> Listen carefully to the words that are about to come out of my mouth. That's me. Verse 10, days within a year, you will be terrified, oh, complacent ones. Meaning what? Meaning in just a matter of days, things are going to get really, really ugly for you. Explain yourself. What do, what do you mean? Look at the end of the verse. This is so interesting. He says, the vintage and the gathering will cease. It will come no more. What is he talking about? You know what he's talking about? Party is over. The party's over. The before the next batch of grapes comes in from which you make your wines and your fancy alcoholic drinks, you're going to be in absolute terror is what that means. You understand these, these women were victims of deceit and the clever political spinning of military events that made a bad situation look optimistic. Like many people today, these women bought the propaganda from the royal media that everything is fine, it's just fine. Egypt will protect us, Egypt will deliver us, Egypt will save us, Egypt will rescue us. And over here is the lone voice of Isaiah saying, trust in Yahweh alone. And yet it was swallowed up by the mob. That's why verses 11 and 12. Be terrified, O women at ease. Tremble, O complacent daughters. Strip, strip yourselves. Gird yourselves about the loins. Beat yourselves on the breast. You know what that is? That's a call to repentance. Stop messing around with your sin. And come back to Yahweh with broken hearts. And tender souls. And, and a zeal, a consuming zeal to have Yahweh as your treasure come back. But why? Why should they mourn? Why should they be sad? Why should they weep? What was going to happen to them that was so bad? Verse 12. The pleasant fields that supplied their food, they're gone. The fruitful vines from which they get their wine, they're gone. Verse 13. All farming, Agriculture, cultivation of the land, it's gone. Verse 13, all the joyful houses in jubilant city, meaning the mirth and the amusement the, and the parties that filled Jerusalem are for all intents and purposes effectively over. Verse 14, the palace will be abandoned, the city forsaken, hill and watchtower will be caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for the flocks. What is he talking about? 
You know what that is? That's ancient Near Eastern language for military defeat. That's what that is. The absolute destruction of a city, fields, agriculture, and the entire economy. That's what that is. Because you understand, church, when an enemy nation showed up at the gates ready to invade you, you lost everything. And the people of Judah would and will lose everything. There was a Category 10 storm coming for which they were entirely unprepared. Here's the situation. These were apathetic women led by weak men. They didn't feel the beauty of God's glory or the weight of eternity or the gravity of sin or the spiritual battle that life in a fallen world is. They were seduced by sin, groggy with greed, poisoned by pride in a coma of comfort, arrested by apathy. And at the end of the day, the entire country lived like the word of God was no big deal. church, my question for you is, do you see anything like that in your life? Are you asleep at the wheel, spiritually speaking? Do you see in your life the sticky web of spiritual indifference? Are you apathetic and lethargic towards the things of God and Christ? Do you live in nonchalant disregard of the word of God? Can you go weeks and weeks and weeks of dabbling in sin and not seeking Christ through his word and at the end of the day, not really care? At least not enough to change. I'm not trying to accuse you or beat up on you, but like Isaiah, I must wake you up. Need to wake up. Because maybe some of you might realize that you don't actually know Jesus Christ at all. That if you're asleep, you need to tremble at the horror of not rejoicing in God. That you would quake at the fearful lukewarmness of your hearts. That you would awaken to the truth that it is a treacherous sin not to pursue satisfaction in Jesus Christ with all of our hearts. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know him, you need to know the Lamb of God stands right now and calls for your repentance. The king of Zion beckons from the right hand of the father. Come and drink. Come and eat. Come be cleansed in the fountain of blood. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not called out to him in repentance and faith, today, right now, is the moment you must. Which brings us very quickly. I see the clock. It's lying Very quickly, part four. Part four. The pouring out and the peace. The pouring out and the peace, because you need to understand for the people of Judah, the worst is yet to come. Still, it's worse. The worst is yet to come. Because in the future, in a time of tribulation, God is going to rip open the cosmos and lay it naked and bare in the fires of his wrath. And yet you need to hear, church, that for us, the best is also yet to come. The best is yet to come. 
Because that's what Isaiah keeps telling us again and again. He keeps giving us glimpses of a golden age to come in the future, does he not? Sneak previews, theatrical trailers of an age to come in which things will not be as they are now. They will be different. They will be redeemed. They will be transformed. It will be the kingdom. And that is exactly what he gives us in verses 15 through 20. And so I close, I close with six end times guarantees that both break us with their beauty and secure us with God's sovereignty. And they're in your notes. They're going fast. End times guarantee number one, the spirit will be revealed. The spirit will be revealed. Look at verse 15. Isaiah envisions a day in the future when he says the spirit will be poured out on us from on high. Do you see that? Church, we've already received the spirit. He has come. When you believed, you received God the Spirit within you. And don't you see the work of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit is profoundly eschatological. His job, his ministry is to give you samples and foretastes of the age to come. He, Paul says in Ephesians 1.14, he is the down payment and guarantee of the age to come. And it is coming. And times guarantee number two, the earth will be renewed. The earth will be renewed. Verse 15 the desert will become an orchard. And the orchard will be reckoned as a forest. Meaning what? Meaning what? The curse will be lifted from creation. Do you know that? Deserts will turn to orchards. Barren lands will be lush and abundant. We've only known a fallen world. We've only known a cursed creation. But at the end of the age, when the king returns, paradise lost will be regained. End times guarantee number three. Number three, righteousness will be restored. Righteousness will be restored. Look at verses 16 and 17. Justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will lodge in the orchard and the work of righteousness will be peace and the deed of righteousness will be rest and confidence forever. What is he even talking about? What he's saying is everything that is ugly and broken and twisted and sinister and fallen and painful and ugly and heartbreaking one day will be reversed and removed and returned to its perfect paradise pristine conditions justice and righteousness will rule this isn't social justice this is kingdom justice and times guarantee number four number four israel will be rescued Israel will be rescued, verse 18, my people, who's that? That's Judah in Israel. My people will dwell in a lodge of, of, of peace and their dwelling places will be secure and resting places will be undisturbed. All the danger and threats and fears of Israel that they've had their entire existence will be over and removed. It'll be over. And you understand that's the plan from the very beginning, to rescue Israel, to deliver Israel. And you understand the reason why that matters is because God's faithfulness to Israel is the guarantee that he will keep his promises to us. End times guarantee number five. Number five, the wicked will be ruined. The wicked will be ruined. Verse 19 such a strange sounding verse. He says, and it will hail when the forest comes down and the cities will surely be laid low. 
just a hint here. If you remember, if you had read from 24 to now, this verse makes perfect sense. All of that is, is apocalyptic destruction, judgment, imagery. One day the wrath of God will come on the earth like hail and all the wicked cities will fall like trees in the forest and they will be replaced by totally brand new cities in which righteous citizens will dwell. This is your future if you're in Christ. This is your happy ever after. End times guarantee number six. And then we're done. Creation will be revitalized. Creation will be revitalized. Look at how he ends in verse 20. Blessed, literally, happy are you who sow your seeds on the waters and who let out freely the oxen and the donkey. What a way to end a chapter. What is he even talking about? We're talking about farm animals here, old McDonald here. We're talking about the kingdom. And it sounds, it sounds bizarre and strange. I, I understand, but you have, to, you have to know this, that in the Psalms and the prophets, water is a sign of God's blessing. And in the future kingdom, there will be so much water that you can cast your seeds anywhere, and they'll grow. And the earth will be so lavish and abundant that you could feed your animals anywhere, and they can eat till their heart's content. The point is there will be no more famines, no more plagues, no more hunger. Instead, all we will know in the kingdom is an abundance and profound prosperity that we have never even imagined in the world. And here's the thing, the point of all of that is to break us, to break us, to break us with its beauty and to secure us with God's sovereignty. That there's, there's, there's no sin in your life that's worth hanging on to. There's no lust in your life that's worth keeping around. That all anxiety and fear is literally illogical in light of the future and all that God has planned for the end of the age. Because don't you see, in the moments of panic and fear and anxiety and sadness and depression and anger and temptation, what we need in that moment is not just the sense that things will merely get some better somehow, but that God has already planned the future. And the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful for the things that you show us. These things are hard, tricky, difficult, and yet, Lord, such riches. Lord, if there's anything, it seems that you want to impress upon our souls is that we need to see the world through different eyes. Help us to do that very thing, to see the world through the eyes of your plan unfolding in the world, to see the eyes through the glory of your son, to see the eyes through your meticulous, perfect sovereignty that governs everything that comes to pass, to see the world through the fact that one day things will not be as they are now, but they will be as they ought to be. We thank you for that, and we ask you for that. In your mighty and matchless name.